Paul in Romans chapter 1 uh, basically builds a case indicting the human race for their sin. In fact, he begins with his normal greetings to the people in Rome. And then he says, I'm going to tell you the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel. And then he begins the gospel in verse 18 by talking about the fact that the wrath of God is coming upon mankind. All right? And then you say, well, why is God upset? What's he so angry about with mankind? And here in verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, and you say, how does mankind know God? Well, in the verse before, he says, uh, God is evident. He is obviously here. How do we know? By looking at creation. By looking at what has been made, there is no excuse for, 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 for not knowing that he exists. Right? He created stuff. When you think about it philosophically, how do you explain the existence of stuff? There's no explanation except a creator created it. And it's not only ordinary stuff, it's pretty cool stuff. It's stuff like human brains and human eyes and birds that fly and puppy dogs and computers and things that uh, human brains make. You go, wow, uh, I buy the evolution track. No, you don't. There is no excuse for not acknowledging the existence and the glory of God by looking at creation. So that's what Paul begins with. And then he says, so everybody knows God exists and you see his glory and you see his power. Yet what man does is he uh, tries to convince himself that that God is not that glorious and not that powerful. And then he says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What, what this says is the proper response of the creature should be to the creator, thank you, thank you. Okay, um, It is the essence of sin to dishonor God by not being thankful to him. Not just for what he can provide, but for who he is himself. Now here's what man does. Man in his depravity goes on to exchange the glory of God for a substitute, for idols. Right? And idols are not just little metal statues that you bow down to. I've said this before. Idols can be metal, but most idols are mental. Most idols are in our mind. We reduce the glory of God to a bite-sized God that we can manage. And therefore, who's going to be thankful to a manageable God? So you see this, this whole concept of the wrath of God coming upon man as sinners is tied up in our lack of thankfulness for who God is. All right? Now, as Christians, you know, what's a Christian? Well, a Christian is somebody who believes in Jesus Christ. Yes, that's true. But if you truly believe in Christ, 
your eyes have been opened, your heart has been opened, and you understand who the true God is, and we understand what Christ has done for us, and we start to become thankful for who God is, right? He becomes our treasure, the one we value the most, the one we love, the one we live for. And now get this, the more we know him, the more thankful we become. And the converse of that is true also. The more thankful we become, the more we want to know him. And then the more we know him, the more thankful we become. So, so you say, I, I want to please him by being thankful, but I'm not very thankful this week. How do I become more thankful? By getting to know him more. All right? Now, how do you get to know God? Well, we could do it the way many people do it. We could do a study of the attributes of God. Okay? And that's, that's a valid thing to do. You know, study his omnipotence and his omniscience and uh, his glory and his wrath and his this and his that. Um, and that's a very valid thing to do, a study of the attributes of God. But you know the other way that God has given us to know him better? Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible, he's intangible, he's hard to even put on a piece of paper with his attributes. Oh, God gave us Jesus to look at, who reveals who God really is. Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. So, here's what I want to do. This is really simple. This is very, this is, this is Sunday school simple, yet it's so profound. We're going to look at Jesus today. Right, we're going to take a look at Jesus, and we're going to see the glory of the invisible God, and we're going to get to know him better, which should produce thanks in our heart, which should prepare us for a week and a lifetime of thanksgiving. Okay? So the first passage that I want to look at is a really interesting passage. We're going to look at Jesus um, as he enters into Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. And he enters into Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is he goes into the temple on Monday of Holy Week. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He went berserk in the temple. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So just stop right there. Picture Jesus running through the courts of the temple, flipping over the money changers tables and releasing the pigeons and the goats and the birds and and yelling at these people. You'd be afraid. You'd be afraid if somebody did that at Walmart, wouldn't you? Now, you would think that the very next verse would say something like, um, and from that point on, no one felt safe around Jesus because they feared he was a crazy, fanatical maniac who could go off on people. 
But the very next thing we read, I want you to see how profound this is. He goes berserk in the temple, and the very next thing we read is this. And the blind and the lame, right? These are the most vulnerable people. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Apparently, they felt safe enough with this man who just unleashed his, his wrath, and they came to him, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, so now we have little children uh, coming to him, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The chief priests were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, I have. Uh, Yes, I have. Yes, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, Babies, you have prepared praise. The blind, the lame, the children find him safe to come to. Right? What a what a unique man this is. He can vent his wrath. Yet, at the same time, the most vulnerable, vulnerable people find him safe to approach. The blind, the lame, and the children come to him. Now, the, the corrupt, who are in the temple for profit, he whips them. We'll find out that he used a whip in a, in a few moments. And they feared him. The power-hungry, the chief priests, were offended by him, and they opposed him. But the most vulnerable felt safe and loved by him, so they came to him. Now, we can list the attributes of God, but what do you see going on here in this person of Jesus Christ? Let me, uh, let me give you the first word that comes to mind as we look at this person. Kindness. I see a kind man. Now, you've got to be careful with that word because it's so blah. In fact, I remember when I was in grade school, I think it was first grade, We had one of these little reading circles where the teacher would sit there and we would sit in our little chairs and we would read, um, you know, uh, I remember a book named Tip. Remember Tip the dog and his owner, Jack and Jane? And we would read a story about Tip and Jack. And then the teacher would say, now, who can tell me, who can describe Jack? And somebody, I remember this, raised their hand and said, He was nice. And the teacher exploded. I never want to hear that word nice again. I've been doing this 25 years. And whenever I ask about the main character, all I hear is they're nice. They're not nice. I don't want to hear about it again. And we're all like little kids. Like, what is? (laughs) She said nice means nothing. Everybody's nice. I'm like, okay, we weren't allowed to use the word nice And from that point on, I don't use it ever because I'm terrified of the teacher. But when I look at Jesus, as bland as that word is, he's nice. 
Okay, he's kind. You know, there's a, a question that preachers debate back and forth, and that is in preaching the gospel, do you start with the love of God or the wrath of God? On one hand, people say, uh, unless people see their need for a Savior, they will never turn to him, and the only way you'll see your need as a sinner is if the wrath of God is preached. The others will come back and say, but people will never turn to God if all they hear is the wrath of God. They first need to hear about the love of God. And so the debate goes back and forth. And however you end up coming out on that question, it's true that the prodigal son would never turn to his father and go back to him if he didn't know that there was a kind father waiting for him, right? So whatever, whatever you believe about preaching, preaching the law, preaching the gospel, at some point people need to know that this God that they're being called to is a kind God. Let me just show you some other things about Jesus that demonstrate his kindness and his healing Ministry. Have you ever noticed that when he healed, there's a certain word that keeps appearing. Uh, here, a leper, he comes across a leper, and it says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Why is that significant? Because lepers were untouchable. They were contagious. They had to cover themselves, and if they came into a public setting, they had to shout out, unclean, unclean, and people would scatter. So here is a, a man who uh, has been not only dying, his flesh is eating away, but he's socially an outcast. He hasn't been touched for who knows how long. And Jesus doesn't just long distance go, I heal you. He touches him. And heals him. Why? Because he's kind. Jesus goes to Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is sick in bed. Some people believe Peter was the first pope. If Peter had a mother-in-law, then Peter had a wife. First pope had a wife. Um, she's sick in bed. He touched her hand. And the fever left her. He didn't just say, mother-in-law, get up. He takes her hand. Right? Here's a girl who dies. Little girl, 12-year-old girl. He went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. She's coming back from the dead. Whoa, who's this kind man holding my hand? Blind people. He touched their eyes and healed them. Other blind people. And Jesus, in pity, why did he touch? In pity, he touched their eyes. And he's a kind, gentle God. Okay. He goes to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to kill him, reject him, crucify him. And then in 70 AD, the entire city will be destroyed and a million Jews will be killed. 
And as he looks over Jerusalem, does he go, yeah, and you deserve it? No, he wept over Jerusalem. The very people that were going to crucify him, he wept for them. Why? Because he's a kind God. Now, some of you may be saying, oh, yes, he's a kind, he's an... God is nice. We love to hear about God's niceness. Bring it on. Tell us more about how nice he is. Well, let's revisit the first part of the first scripture where he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables and he vents okay, his wrath. So attribute number two that we want to look at is his wrath. Interesting, um, in Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple takes place during Holy Week, the week he dies. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 2, we read about Jesus cleansing the temple and turning over the tables at the beginning of his ministry. And you go, well, what, well, how do you explain that? I think every time Jesus went to the temple, he went berserk. Right? Um, in John chapter 2, though, we read that he takes some cords and he makes a whip and cleanses the temple. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think his whip ever made contact with flesh and drew blood? I think a lot of people will go, oh, no, not kind, gentle Jesus. He wouldn't hurt anybody. Why? Why, why, are, why would you be offended if Jesus' whip actually hit a disrespectful sinner who was making profit off the temple and drew blood? Why is that an offensive thought? Okay. Jesus is going to return one day. And from the looks of things, it could be very soon. And he is going to pour out his wrath upon all who have not bowed the knee to him. In Revelation chapter 6, it's interesting, these seals are broken on the scroll, unleashing disasters, and then by the time we get to the last seal, or the sixth seal, I should say, here's what it says. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. I always picture a, uh, uh, a shade on a, on a window, and whoosh, sky disappears. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, Petraeus, read that, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. What? The wrath of the lamb? Lambs aren't wrathful. They're cute. They don't roar. Well, 
here John is portraying for us this Jesus who in the temple is healing and playing with the children, yet at the same time can exercise his wrath. It is the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? He's a lion and he's a lamb. He is gentle and kind, and he is also wrathful and omnipotent and all-powerful. And those who have not bowed the the knee, not only are they hiding from him on this day, this great day of wrath, but then for eternity, here's what will happen to them. He also, this is the unbeliever, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. There's that lamb again. You know, uh, some people say, well, what is hell? Well, hell is just the absence of God. No, it's not. He's right there. Hell is being tormented in the presence of the Lamb for all eternity. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. What I'm doing here is I want you to see the kindness and the gentleness of Jesus the Lamb, but don't take him as a wimp. He will wreak havoc on this earth and pour out his wrath. And then for all eternity, he will punish with his wrath those who have rebelled against him. I think it's been a while since I mentioned our first dog. We have two dogs buried in our backyard. Barkley, who deserves it. (laughs) Barkley, who... Um, I think I've told you this before, but we buried Barkley, and one day when Caitlin was jumping on the trampoline with her friend, they came screaming into the house, ah, I go, what's the matter? Barkley, he's getting out of the grave. I'm like, come on. <laughs> Barkley is not getting out of the grave. The next day I'm cutting the grass, a paw was coming out of the ground, okay? So I just went over it with the... <laughs> But forget Barkley. He went to the place he deserved to go, okay? But Tucker, Tucker was a great, he was our golden retriever. He was a wonderful dog. He lived to be 14. And um, most gentle dog you'd ever want to meet. In fact, we had him first before the kids, and we started bringing babies into the house. And um, when when the babies would go up to pet him, he would get down and roll over on his back and let the babies pet him. Okay, isn't that cute, Dan? That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a picture of Josh covered with powder sugar because Josh and Caitlin one day found the powder sugar container and had a great time, right? <laughs> and he's on Tucker's back riding Tucker, and Tucker's just like, all right, let's do this, okay. So this incredibly gentle dog... Now, one day, my dad took Tucker for a walk, and he came back, and he goes, uh, there was a black lab that came tearing out of a garage, 
and it was going to attack, I don't know if it was going to attack Tucker or my dad, Tucker grabbed it by the neck and threw it back in the yard and just kept walking. <laughs> is he a lion? Is he a lamb? Yes, he is. He is a lion and a lamb. C.S. Lewis in uh, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe introduces Aslan, who's a lion. He represents Jesus. And the little girl, Lucy, is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about this Aslan. Who is Aslan? Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I can tell you he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Safe? Jesus safe? But he's good. Now, um, you go, all right, so Jesus is this kind, gentle healer in the temple. Yet he's also overturning the tables and he's wrathful and he'll come back and he'll punish people for eternity. Do I flee from him or go to him? Well, let me continue to pursue the idea of his wrath. But his wrath is defined by another one of his attributes and that is his justice. Okay. What do I mean by his justice? Well, his wrath is dished out in proportion to justice. In fact, in Acts 17.31, Paul is in Athens, Greece, and he's speaking before all the philosophers. And he says, he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He's talking about Jesus. God has fixed a day in which Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. Now, some of your Bibles say injustice. Not injustice, but they say he will judge in, pause, justice. It's the Greek word dikaiosune. It, it can be translated righteous. Or justice. What's it mean? God does everything right. In other words, his wrath is not an anger management problem. He dishes out his wrath in perfect proportion to what sinners deserve. So, on judgment day, 
when he judges us, and if you get sent to hell and you endure his wrath for all eternity, he's not being overly harsh. He is dishing out his wrath in perfect proportion to what you deserve. Okay? So I want you to see that this Jesus in the temple who overturns the tables yet is kind to the children and the blind and the lame. He's kind, yet uh, he is also wrathful. His wrath is perfectly just. And we see many portrayals of Jesus as judge, as judge of the universe. He himself told the parable of the sheep and the goats, and he begins this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is going to happen. All the angels will clear the way and they will set up a throne and Jesus Christ will return in glory surrounded by his angels. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. And it goes on to saying that the sheep will be saved and the goats will be sent away to eternal punishment. And it will all be done according to Perfect justice. Not an anger management problem, but perfect justice. In the book of Revelation, we see another similar scene. Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away. There again is that that. Shade rolling up. And it's a picture of of utter terror. The justice of God is terrifying, so terrifying that even the earth and the sky flee. So now you almost have this picture of all of humanity floating in space in front of the throne of God. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. What are the books? The books of justice. Where everything you've ever done has been recorded. And probably by now it's digital, right? <laughs> and we will be judged according to perfect justice. You say, what will be judged? The big events of my life? Ecclesiastes says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil every moment of your life will be judged with perfect justice before the God of all glory and he will judge you according to not his wrath problem, his anger problem but according to perfect justice are you nervous? you better be Who can stand before Aslan without their knees knocking? Is there any good news? All right, so we started with his kindness. We saw his wrath. We saw his justice. Now, one more thing I want us to see as we look at Jesus. His love. 
we see his love. In Luke's gospel, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, for him to to be taken up and crucified and then taken up to heaven, when that drew near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus' goal is to die. And he sets his face like flint, as Isaiah says, to go to Jerusalem. The, the picture I get here, you know, in all the Rocky movies, Rocky's a kind of a big dumb guy, and he's goofing around, and there's Mickey, and he's hitting the meat, you know. And uh, at some point, he gets serious. And the music starts, and he's working, he's drinking eggs, and he's lifting weights. This is the point in Luke's gospel. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. So he enters Jerusalem, and at any point, he could have, have called time out and gotten out of this. All right? But he doesn't. So the first thing he does is he goes to the temple and he wreaks havoc in the temple. Why? Well, yes, to, dis- to display the attribute of his wrath, but also to fix his fate. He didn't enter quietly. Everybody knew Jesus of Nazareth was in town now. He didn't have to then the next day, teach in the temple courts. He could have hid out, but he goes into the temple courts and crowds gather and he teaches. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians try to trap him with question after question. And he outsmarts them all. He has a press conference, basically. And he fields questions and he outsmarts them all. So when he's done, the people uh, were filled with glee and the Pharisees and the Sadducees hung their heads. Why did he do that? To assure that he would be crucified. Last Supper, he knows he's going to be arrested. He could flee. He could escape. But where does he go after the Last Supper? To the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, have you ever noticed what it says about the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus chooses a place to pray that was a common place that Judas would know about, so Judas could betray him. Why did he go there? Why didn't he hide? Because he didn't come to Jerusalem to hide. He came to Jerusalem to die. So he goes to a place where he knows Judas will know that he is. And he hands himself over. As he's being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and he starts to fight. And he chops off a guy's ear. It's a bad shot. He's going for his head and he just got his ear. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And Peter's like, what? Peter doesn't get it. And he says, don't you think that if I wanted to escape, I could call on my father and he would send 12 legions of angels. 
the legion was a term that referred to 6,000 Roman soldiers. So let's do the math. 12 legions times 6,000 is 72,000. I think he could have won. All he had to do was say, help, and God would have sent 72,000 angels. He doesn't. He says, Peter, put your sword away, and they take him. And he's brought on trial, actually three trials, first before the Sanhedrin, then before Pilate, then before Herod. He could have outsmarted these guys. But he's silent. He doesn't say a word. Why? Because he's there to get crucified. He's, he's forced to carry a cross to a hill called Golgotha. And before they nail him to the cross, they offer him a sedative. He refuses. Why? Because he was choosing to endure the full wrath of God to pay for your sins and my sins. In love, he says no to the painkiller and yes to the pain. Your pain and my pain that we deserved. So the nails pierce his hands and his feet and the people mock him in agony as he is hanging on the cross and the blood from the thorns is running into his eyes and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could have quit, but he didn't quit. Why? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's our substitute. He is dying in our place for our sin. Why? Because he loves. Yes, if you reject his love, you will face the full just wrath that your sins deserve. But the good news is, he is also kind and loving. And he took your place on that cross. And he says, come to me. All, all who come to me, you get what I did for you. So the question is, as I hear about his wrath and, and his justice and his love and his kindness, do I flee from him or to him? All who flee to him and trust him, you have no wrath to fear. And that is something to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. All right, let's pray.